Sometimes our questions stand out. Sometimes our questions really bother and frustrate us. Sometimes questions we have about life, faith, the universe, and our purpose make us feel all alone. Here's the truth. Everybody has doubts. Everybody has unanswered questions that don't make sense. Some of our doubts are seemingly small, and some of our doubts have really stumped us. Doubts can either hold you back or move you forward. So the question is, where are your doubts taking you? Well, I woke up yesterday morning and this morning with no voice at all, and so it is a miracle that I'm able to speak to you right now, and so I just want to ask that you would excuse my voice uh, in the next few moments, uh, as I hope that uh, this message will be really helpful for you. Now, some have come up to me after services and said, hey, I'm going to start calling you raspy, uh, and to that I just say, no, I'm just bringing sexy back, all right? <laughs> Now, before we jump into things this morning, I need to make an announcement to you that, in all honesty, is a little bit bittersweet. One thing that we realize around here at Crossroads is that the kingdom of God is bigger than us. The kingdom of God is bigger than any one person or any one local church, and it's not about any of us. It's been said before that the mark of a healthy church is not so much determined and measured by its seating capacity, but by its sending capacity. Therefore, all followers of Jesus are commissioned by Christ to go into the world and spread the gospel message of truth and grace to all people. And so today, I want to take a moment to celebrate the fact that we have one very well-known staff member who has responded in obedience to this call of going. About four months ago, College Heights Christian Church in Joplin, Missouri, began pursuing one of our pastors, Cy Huffer, to be their next lead pastor. Well, when they reached out to Cy, he wasn't looking to leave. He's been content here. He's really excited about where our church is heading in the future. And so when they initially reached out to him, Cy and Monica both just went into a season of praying and fasting because there was a big part of them that didn't want to go, but... Over a matter of time, they quickly sensed that this was a call from God himself. And so two weeks ago, Cy officially accepted the elders' offer to be their next lead pastor. And we are thrilled for their church as we know God will use Cy and Monica in a really uh, tremendous way there. But if you're like me, yeah. But you know, there's, a, there's this other part of me that hurts knowing that I'm saying goodbye to a really close friend whom I love, respect, and uh, look up to uh, in a lot of ways. Now, you need to know that size last weekend here at Crossroads will be June 4th and 5th, so you're going to have plenty of uh, opportunities to say goodbye to he and Monica and their little baby girl, Jerry Jean. Uh, but what I want to do right now... Uh, is just take a moment and ask Cy to come up here and let's all celebrate that this is a win for the kingdom of God, everybody, all right? Let me pray for Cy and Monica, all right? 
Lord, it's easy to say that the kingdom of God is bigger than us, but it, it becomes really difficult when it becomes real that we have to say goodbye to someone that we love and respect and admire. Um, and that someone here today is Sai. And so, God, we know that this is of you. We know that this is your calling and your leading. And uh, I'm just grateful that uh, even when Sai and Monica wanted to stay, that they are going because they know that this is of you and this is what you're calling them to do. We know that College Heights... Uh, Christian Church is going to benefit greatly uh, from size teaching, from size leadership, and uh, I'm personally just excited to see how that church is going to grow and how that church is going to uh, continue advance your mission uh, in the Joplin area. And so it hurts, uh, but at the same time, we just want to celebrate uh, size faithfulness to you and uh, the fact that you have obviously put this upon uh, his life. For we lift all of this up in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Well, this weekend we do continue this series called Room for Doubt, where we've been wrestling with some of life's most difficult questions that we can ask. Now, today's question is a question that we've all asked at some point in our life. If you could have a sit-down conversation with the God of the universe, inevitably, this would probably be one of the first questions you might ask. And it goes like this. Why, God, would you allow so much suffering and evil to occur in our world today? Now, we've all struggled probably with that question before. And there is no other question that we could ask God that would make us wrestle and struggle with him more than maybe the answers that we could identify. And again, we've all been there before. Perhaps you've experienced some type of loss, some type of grief in your life, and inevitably it's forced you to face your perspective of God. Maybe you were ambushed by some type of grief and pain, and so what ended up happening was you started asking a God that you had been running from, you had been asking him questions. You started asking him and running after some of those answers, and though you had been rejecting him and running away from him, all of a sudden those circumstances made you face the reality of, God, are you out there, and if so, why have you allowed this to come into my life? Now, perhaps some of the answers that you've come across haven't been all that satisfying and haven't made that much sense to you. Therefore, you've just kind of stayed away from God, right? I mean, after all, why should you trust God whenever he allowed you to go through that miscarriage? I mean, why follow after a God who seemed distant to you during those years when your husband was physically abusive or emotionally abusive to you? I mean, how in the world can you trust a God who didn't intervene when an uncle molested you as a child? You ever asked those questions before? Now, let me just be straight with you for a moment. There are some questions that we ask, answers will not ultimately heal and they will not satisfy. Therefore, because of your experiences in life, you've said, look, I'm rejecting the irrational claims of Christianity because I just can't reconcile how a God who is supposedly in control and a God who is supposedly loving would allow me to go through this. Therefore, maybe you come in here today and your perspective of God could be defined by one of the following two perspectives. Maybe you think God is good, but he is not sovereign. I mean, you give God the benefit of the doubt here and you believe that he is a God of love. He just doesn't possess authority. He doesn't possess the 
power to maybe stop some bad things from happening in your life. This is what philosophers refer to as open theism. Open theism is this belief that that God in no way, shape, or form can determine the future. Therefore, he can't stop when bad things happen to us. Now, maybe you don't so much line up with that perspective, but maybe this would define where where you're coming from. Because of your experiences, you believe that, that God is sovereign, but he is not good. God is sovereign, but he is not good. So it's not so much a question of authority for you as it is a question of God's character. You believe that God has power. I mean, after all, he was the creator of all this, but you just don't think he's good. He's not deserving of worship and honor, right? This is what some philosophers would refer to as deism. Deism is this belief that God created everything, and when he did, he just kind of spun it into emotion, threw humanity into the mix, and just kind of left it up to us to figure everything out from there. Now, let me just be honest with you for a moment. If your view of God can be determined by one of these two perspectives, I don't blame you for for running from him. I don't. But what if, what if suffering and pain and evil was never a part of God's original design to begin with? I mean, what if when he made us as people, as humanity, he never intended for us to even wrestle with this question of suffering and pain? You see, there's a book in the Bible called Genesis at the very beginning where we see how the creation of this world, of the universe happened. And so God is creating all these different things. He's creating the ocean and the mountains and the land and and the, the animals. And he's creating us as people. And when he looks back on all of his creation in Genesis chapter 1 verse 31, this is what we read happened next. Then God looked over all that he had made and he saw that it was what? It was very good, Right? Now, part of God's very good original design was creating us, people, the image bearers of God. Our very first parents were a couple named Adam and Eve. They walked with God in complete harmony and unity in an actual place called the Garden of Eden. Now, the Hebrew word for what they experienced can be defined by and summarized by this word shalom. Now, shalom is a word that we've studied in here before. It conveys this idea of peace and harmony and unity and wholeness and tranquility. Now, shalom was so real for Adam and Eve that they could lie down beside a lion and pet him without the fear of him mauling their bodies. They could go to a stream and drink water right from it without having to worry about bacteria invading their bodies. Adam didn't have to worry about Eve putting on a dress and asking him, does this dress make me look fat? (laughs) Amen. (laughs) You see, you didn't even need clothing back then. I mean, talk about a guy's dream world. You know what I mean? (laughs) I mean, you didn't have to worry about mosquito bites, cellulite, sunburns, or illnesses. It was perfection. It was shalom. And you see, This idea of shalom is actually what you and I were created to be a part of. This is what we were created for. But you see, when God created us, he knew the risk was involved. He knew that he couldn't just form and make a bunch of puppets or robots to give him what he needed when he needed most. And so that's why God designed us with free will in mind. But you see, with free will comes the risk of rejection, right? And so God knew when he created people that we could either choose to love him or disobey him. 
We could choose to find delight in him or find delight in ourselves. And so Genesis chapter 3 A couple chapters later, after the creation account, we see that Adam, our first dad, was not very good in leading his wife. He was very passive, and so that led to her rebelling and disobeying the one command, the one boundary that God first established in that garden. That was to not eat of the fruit that was right in the middle. And so because of this disobedience, because of this sin, it led to this. This is what we see happening next. So the Lord God banished them from the garden of Eden. You see, ever since this moment right here, you and I, we've been living life outside of the garden. We've been banished from shalom. And you see, that's why this world is so broken and frustrating and chaotic. You see, the more we live life outside the garden, the more we long for life inside the garden. And really, that's at the heart, whether you know it or not, of every question that we ask regarding pain and suffering. We intrinsically are born with this curiosity to know, God, where is this shalom that I was made for and designed for? Now, if you have your Bibles or Bible app, I want you to go ahead and jump, excuse me, jump to the New Testament book of John. John is towards the back fourth of your Bibles. All right, it goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans from there. And uh, today we're going to be in chapter 9. If you don't own a Bible, there's a black Bible right in front of you. Uh, That's our gift to you. If you're worshiping with us back in the chapel, it's on that table uh, right as you walked in there. Be sure and take that home with you. Again, we believe here at Crossroads that the power uh, is found in the Word of God, all right? And so in chapter 9, verse 1, we see that Jesus' closest friends, his disciples, his followers, began asking Jesus this question that we've all asked before. Why suffering, Jesus? I mean, why so much evil in this world today? You know what I'm saying? And so check out what John, a close friend of Jesus, first records in in verse one here. It says this, as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or was it because of his parents' sins? And so here you have Jesus' disciples trying to identify the root cause of misery. Now, assuming that the right answer would make suffering a little bit more tolerable and palatable, they wanted to know why this guy here who had been born blind, why he was blind from the beginning. But I want you to notice how quickly the disciples mistakenly jumped to conclusions here. They said, was it because of his own sins or was it because of his parents' sins? You see, the closest friends of Jesus were just like us today in 2016. I mean, there's something about seeing someone struggle, someone going through difficulty that just makes us surface a lot of stupid responses. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? I mean, whenever we see someone suffering, it it just kind of gets awkward and we end up saying really stupid things. I'll never forget when I was first diagnosed with lymphoma back in 2009, I went to church and a lady came up to me and she said, hey, by the way, I just want you to know that I'm praying for you. I was like, oh, great, thank you. She said, yeah, my mom had the very same cancer that you had and she died three years ago. That was so encouraging. A couple weeks later when I began going through chemotherapy, uh, that's a medication, you know, that makes your hair fall out. And I didn't think it was all that noticeable. And I thought, you know what, no medication can ever touch my good looks. And, And so I didn't shave my head. Well, when one of my closest friends saw me for the first time, he just stared at me like I was a ghost. No lie, the first thing he then said to me was, hey, 
If you ever want to borrow my dad's toupee, I'm sure he would give it to you. Yeah, my counselor says it's therapeutic for me to talk about six years later, all right? (laughs) And so in verse two of our text here, we see that the disciples assumed that because the man was born blind that he or his parents had done something to deserve this. But look at verse three, how Jesus responds. He says this, it was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered, this happened so that the power of God could be seen in him. Now, if I'm really honest with you, as your pastor, I don't like Jesus' answer here. I mean, at my first glance, I don't like what Jesus has to say because my immediate response is, well, couldn't God choose another way to manifest his glory? Couldn't God choose another method to show his power rather than making this guy blind? I mean, it's as if this answer only justifies the perspective of God is sovereign, but he's not good, right? I suppose if we were to cut this story off here at verse three, it might seem that way. But let's keep reading here and look at what Jesus continues to say in, in verses four and five. He says, we must, act, we must quickly carry out the tasks assigned to us by the one who sent us. The night is coming, Jesus says, and then no one can work. But while I am here in the world, I am the light of the world, Jesus says. Now, this is really easy for us to miss here. But Jesus, when he says the night is coming, this was his way of predicting his own agony that he knew he was going to go through when being crucified. In other words, Jesus is telling his disciples, look, not even I get an exemption from this misery where, in this world where no shalom exists. Now, the, the disciples here completely missed it. But Christ, in essence, is saying, look, I'm about to die in the most humiliating way possible. And so just so you know, not even I get a pass on this whole grief thing. And I don't know about you, but when I start to see it like that, all of a sudden, I realize that God is not some distant, impersonal, cosmic force who inflicts us with difficulty for the fun of it. I mean, not at all. You see, because we as people, as humanity, chose to leave the garden, because we pursued something outside of shalom, darkness and brokenness is what we got. I mean, think about it like this. It's not like Jesus grew up and saw how terrible our condition was, saw the reality of living in this earth and said to God, okay, Father, I mean, this was a bait and switch. You didn't tell me that leaving heaven to be on this earth would mean that I'd have to go through that and I would have to hang out with that person and then I would have to experience those circumstances. No, make no mistake about it. Jesus knew exactly what he was getting into. He knew the price and the cost of stepping foot into this fractured mess of a place that we call earth. Later on in the story in John chapter nine, Jesus ended up healing the blind man. And so for the first time in this man's life, he could see. And so naturally this caught the attention of everyone in this community. You would think that people would praise Jesus for doing this. You would think that Jesus would be some type of of hero for bringing about healing in this guy's life. Yet for the rest of this chapter, John goes on to describe the ridicule that Jesus endured because, because of this miracle. I mean, of all people, of all people, Jesus understood suffering. 
I mean, he experienced what life outside the garden is like. And if there's one thing Jesus knew about grief, it's that it can disillusion us as we walk through it. I mean, the truth is, if you're not already there today, at some point in your life, you're gonna experience loss, you're gonna go through grief, you will suffer at some point. Aren't you glad you came to church today to hear that? (laughs) But you see, when you do, you will choose to medicate your circumstances in some way. And so, when you go through pain, some of us choose to medicate our condition by maybe working harder, by maybe jumping into another relationship. Some of us will use drugs to numb the pain that we're experiencing. We all have our own way of making life outside the garden a little bit more tolerable, right? And so what I wanna do for the rest of our time today is give you some stuff to think about with the intention that maybe, just maybe, you'll cling to the arms of a loving dad who promised that life outside the garden is hard, but who also promised that, that he would take care of us no matter what. So let me just throw this disclaimer out there before going any further. I don't like every point that I'm about to put up here on this screen. I don't. I mean, it might seem like I'm trying to divert you from the question that you're asking today and understand that I absolutely detest cliche answers. I just do. But can I also tell you something along with that? My experience has been that everything I'm about to say is true if, and this is a big if, if you're willing to look to Jesus and run to him even when every part of you wants to run. Now, I've learned in my life that I'm not able to do that all by myself. I don't have that strength. I don't even possess that faithfulness. That's why I need people in my life to encourage me and to help me look to Jesus no matter what. And so here's the first challenge I wanna give you whenever you experience suffering in your life, and it's this. Even when it seems that our suffering isolates us, Jesus is near. Even when it seems that our suffering isolates us, Jesus is near. There's a story told in the book of Daniel about a certain king named Nebuchadnezzar who made a law requiring everyone in his country to bow down and worship him. Well, three of Nebuchadnezzar's officials named Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to do this because they knew that only the creator God was worthy of ultimate worship. And so when they refused to do this, the king got really furious over their defiance. And so he ordered that these three men be thrown into a fiery furnace. I want you to check out what happens next as they were thrown into this fire. Daniel chapter three, verse 25 says this. Look, Nebuchadnezzar shouted. I see four men unabound walking around in the fire unharmed. And the fourth, he looks like a god. What's going on here? Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into the fire fully expecting to die. This was supposed to be their worst moment in life. But then all of a sudden what happens is someone joined them and the scripture says that they were walking around this furnace unharmed. Now, do you know who that fourth person was that joined them in the fire? Most scholars agree that this is what is what they call a theophany. A theophany is a theological term that simply means a physical appearance of Jesus before his time, before his ministry in the Gospels. I find it no accident that one of the first times Jesus appears in Scripture happens to be in the midst of a moment that was supposed to inflict a lot of suffering and pain and harm. 
Don't miss the point here. You see, Jesus, he he could have chosen to deliver Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before the fire. He could have chosen to deliver them after the fire. But instead, what we see happening here is that Jesus delivered them in the fire. Now, there's something about the furnace of life that disillusions us into thinking that we're all by ourselves, right? I mean, maybe you walk in here today and this is your first time to church since your wife passed away. Perhaps this is your first time seeing some friends ever since you were let go from your job or or maybe you come in here and it's been months or even weeks since a son or a daughter texted you or called you back. You see, it's one thing to go through grief but it's another one we think we're all by ourselves, right? I'll never forget getting to the hospital around 6 a.m. on the morning of my dad's uh, heart transplant surgery back in January. I walked into my dad's room where, where he was just calmly sitting in a chair holding my mom's hand, reading the Bible. And as I walked into that room, he, he said, hey, Patch, why don't you come sit down over here and, and read to me my favorite verse in scripture. And, and I knew that that was Psalm 91. And so that's what I did for the next 10 minutes or so. But when all of my sisters and brothers arrived there in the room, we we prayed for a successful surgery. We then said amen. We heard a knock on the door. It was the nurse who was assigned to take my dad down to prep for surgery. Now, at that moment, it got real. I remember thinking to myself, that may have been the last time that I ever get to pray with my dad. And so as they wheeled my dad away, My dad later said that that was the scariest moment of his life. My entire family went to the waiting room where we waited a long 12 hours until the operation was done. And to be honest with you, I did not anticipate a good outcome. I mean, I fully expected at nine o'clock that night when when the surgeon pulled us into the room for him to say to us, look, we tried all that we could, but things just didn't work out. Now, let me just be honest with you. I totally get it that this story is easy for me to tell because you know what? My fears never became reality that day. I mean, it was a successful surgery. My dad's doing better than he's been in 20, 30 years. But you know what? We all have those moments when no matter how hard we pray, no matter how much faith we have, no matter how much, how much hope we have in a certain circumstances, there are moments when God just seems to be distant and silent to us, right? You ever been there before? But you see, when I look back on that day, I fully realized that it was Jesus who carried us through in that waiting room. And you see, whether you know it or not, he specializes in showing up at the hospice facility. He's there at the funeral home. He'll show up in the jail cell. You see, Jesus has this way of showing up in environments in life that we tend to fear the most. You see, Jesus may choose to deliver you before the fire. He may choose to deliver you after the fire, but at the very least, understand that Jesus will deliver you in the fire as well. There are some of us in here who are, you don't believe anything I just said. And I get that. But what if? What if it's true in spite of how you feel? What what if it's true in spite of what your circumstances may tell you? What if you could look back one day on all your circumstances and realize that it was Jesus who carried you through even when you didn't know it? Well, the second thing I want you to pick up on and remind you of in suffering is this, that even when when, uh, it seems that our suffering is pointless, 
Jesus can redeem it. Jesus can redeem it. Now, for everything that's said today, this is perhaps the one thing that I dislike the most because you know what? It sounds all too much like that false, empty cliche that a lot of us hear from time to time when we hear this. Everything happens for a reason. Everything happens for a reason. That's something we hear a lot. And it's almost as if that reason, however good that reason may be, whatever that reason may be, is supposed to make us feel better in the midst of pain, right? Now, not to burst your bubble, but not everything happens for a reason. You will not find that in Scripture. God is not some puppet master who dictates every little circumstance in our life for some mysterious cause that we will immediately be able to, to, to know and find out. Now, on the contrary, a guy named Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 8. He said, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. And so what Paul is saying here is that only God has the unique ability to take what was tragic and redeem it for something good. You see, he takes, he works all things for good somehow in some way. Now what this verse is not saying is that the redemptive outcome is the reason for your grief from the beginning. Now what this verse is not saying is that whatever that redemptive outcome may be, it should just make you suck it up in the moment. No, Paul is simply acknowledging the reality of life outside the garden and declaring that no matter what, God will take care of you and he will redeem your pain even if it doesn't make sense to you in the moment. <clears throat> Several years ago, uh, the Boston College professor and philosopher Peter Kreeft was interviewed on the topic of God and suffering and, and Kreeft said this. He said the difference between us and God is, is greater than the difference between us and a bear. We, we would agree on that, right? He said, imagine, imagine a bear and it is in a trap and a hunter who out of sympathy chooses to liberate that bear. And so he tries to win the bear's confidence so that he can unfasten his leg from the trap. But the bear has no idea what's going on here. And so he thinks that this man is gonna try to harm him. So finally, the hunter has to shoot the bear full of tranquilizers. The bear, however, thinks this is an attack and that the hunter is trying to kill him. He doesn't realize that this is being done out of compassion for him. But then in order to get the bear out of the trap, the hunter has to actually push the bear further into the trap to release the tension on the spring. Now, if the bear were even semi-conscious at this point, he would even be more convinced that the hunter was his enemy and who was out to cause him suffering and pain. But, Kreef says, the bear would be wrong. And he reaches his incorrect conclusion because he's not a human being. Dr. Kreef then said this, now how can anyone be certain that that's not an analogy between us and God? I believe that God does the same to us sometimes and we can't comprehend why he does it any more than the bear can understand the motives of the hunter. As the bear could have trusted the hunter, he says, so we can trust God. You know what? We will never know why sometimes God chooses to intervene in certain moments and why he seems to be distant and silent and absent in others. 
But what if God possesses this unique power, this unique ability to take our grief, to take our pain, to take our suffering and bring purpose out of it? Now, don't hear me say that there's a specific reason for your misery. That's not what I'm saying. But what if, but what if I'm saying that as your pastor, I've experienced and I've witnessed redemption from even the most awful situations? I mean, can you learn to cling to Jesus knowing that he's redeeming your hurt in some way? You see, the same guy, Paul, who, who wrote that letter in Romans, who, who read Romans, we just read Romans chapter eight, later went on to go through an extended season of torment. He described it as a, as a messenger of Satan who was sent to torture him and it felt like a thorn in his flesh. Some of you are thinking, hmm, that sounds a lot like my ex-husband, Right? Now, we don't know exactly what kind of pain Paul was experiencing, but we do know that Paul struggled to understand why Jesus would allow it and how he eventually would redeem it. And so this is what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul says three times. This meant that Paul went through three intense seasons of prayer and fasting. I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Now, Paul's saying, look, when my world was rocked, even when I tried running from God and begged an explanation from him, after some time passed, I look back and realize that God used that thorn in the flesh to strip me of this illusion called comfort and control. <clears throat> now, I don't know how this goes for you in your life, but whenever my world is turned upside down, I quickly realize that I never had the amount of comfort and control that I thought I had in the beginning, <laughs> right? I mean, all it takes for us is to receive one phone call when we realize that everything we've been building our life upon is fleeting. But what if the good that can come from suffering is a level of brokenness that leads to greater dependence on Jesus. Well, the last thing I want you to hold on to is this. Even when it seems that our suffering is foreign, Jesus can identify. Even when it seems that our suffering is foreign, Jesus can identify. This is why Christ is sometimes referred to as a man of sorrows. He entered this world fully aware that he would experience rejection, torture, and betrayal. One of the very first things that Jesus' closest friend John said of him in John chapter one was this. He said he, talking about Jesus, came to his own people. In other words, he came back for a family reunion and what happened? And even they rejected him. This past week, I went to the home of Harry and Caroline Lukens of our church. Last Monday, Harry received the bad news that his leukemia had returned and it's only a matter of time until it's gonna ultimately take his life. Up until that time comes, he goes to the hospital nearly every day to receive a blood transfusion. As I'm sitting there in his living room, he told me, he said, you know, Patrick, when I told my eight-year-old grandson that I'm receiving blood transfusions, he looked at me with really big eyes and he said, oh, Pop, are you a vampire? <laughs> now, I personally don't know what it's like to receive the bad news that you only have a matter of time left here on earth. And so when there was a moment of silence in our conversation, I, I turned to Harry and Caroline both. I said, now, how are you guys really doing? How are you holding up? And as honest as they could be with me, they said, you know, we're, we're doing okay. 
We've had our moments of struggling. We've had our moments of questioning. And, and we knew that this day was come, would come. Harry's had leukemia for seven years now. They said, but do you know what's getting us through this time? I said, what's that? When we look and we read in the Bible, we realize that Jesus went through way more suffering than us. That his pain was much greater than what we're going through. And you see, I knew what they meant. You see, that was their way of saying that their pain isn't unfamiliar to Christ. There's something comforting knowing that it's impossible for you to get so deep into the grief of life where Jesus can no longer identify with you. I mean, just think for a moment, the last 24 hours of Jesus' life before his crucifixion, some of his closest friends denied ever knowing him. He was put through an illegal trial that was fixed from the beginning. The cross almost wasn't necessary. Why? Because the Roman soldiers had beat him so severely that it almost claimed his death because, he had ble- because of, of bleeding out. Nails were driven into his wrists and feet. You see, crucifixion was the worst possible way to die. It guaranteed a slow death for the worst criminals in an effort to make a, st- a statement to all the bystanders that day that Rome, Rome's in charge, not you. Then on the cross, Jesus experienced neglect from his dad for dying. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, Jesus said. Now we know the story doesn't stop there though, right? I mean, three days later, Jesus crashed his funeral. He rose back to life and and hung around with about 500 people over the span of a month or so. Then the biographers of Jesus make a really interesting observation about the resurrected body of Christ. He still retained the nail marks from his crucifixion. Now that may not seem like that big of a deal to us and oftentimes we can just read right past that when we read what happened to Jesus and his followers after he rose back to life. But we do have to ask the question of why, right? I mean, why would Jesus take his scarred, beaten, bruised body back up to heaven? I mean, if he had literally just defeated death, couldn't he have walked out of the grave with a perfected body? It's just my theory. And I suppose there's no way to really prove this point. But could it be? Could it be that the last image Jesus wanted his followers to have of his body was a reminder to them of the, of the grief and the pain that he endured for their sake? I mean, could it be that knowing his followers would go through a lot of loss, a lot of suffering in their own life? It was ahead of them. Jesus wanted their last physical observation of him to be that of a nail-scarred body. Perhaps that was Jesus' way of telling us that we follow a God who can identify with pain. You know, the initial vision of Jesus that he had for all of his followers is that we would be a community in this world where shalom could actually be found again. And that community is simply called the church. From the beginning, the church was designed to be in an environment where we can lean on one another through pain and difficulty. And so in just a moment, the band is gonna come out here and Katie's gonna sing a song called I Am Not Alone. Now I'll be straight with you. A lot of us walk in here today and we feel as if we are all alone. I mean, you think that whatever it is that you're going through, whatever grief or suffering you're encountering, you, think as, you feel as if you're all by yourself, that nobody can identify, that, that you're just walking through life isolated. Now, let me just lean into that for just a moment. And I, and I don't say this to be insensitive to you, but what if that's not true? 
And what, what if it's not true that, that, you, that you're all alone? You see, some words are gonna be appear on the screen and, and what I want you to do, I just want you to sit there and I want you to maybe read them. I want you to maybe think through and process some, some stuff that you've heard today. Perhaps you might use this as a moment to pray and, and just give over your grief to God. But what if, what if you came to realize that you're really not alone? What if you came to understand that there is a God out there who hasn't left you to deal with everything by yourself, who hasn't isolated you from his presence, but actually promises you to walk through life with you? I mean, could your story get a little bit better knowing that? Let me pray. She's gonna sing this song and, uh, and then we'll, we'll be out of here in just a few moments. God, I know that some of us walk in here today just barely hanging on, God. We, we've just had the worst week of our life. We've just had the worst month of our life because he left me, she left me, or, or we got that phone call, we got that text message, or I'll never see him or her again. And Lord, that's just the reality of living in a world that's broken and living life outside the garden. And God, what's worse than the pain that we're experiencing is believing and thinking and realizing that we're experiencing pain all by ourselves. So God, in this moment, would you just gently remind us that you are with us and that you're not a God who can't identify with our suffering, but you're actually a God who came and and faced our suffering head on by going through what we deserved, and that was the cross. We love you, Lord, and uh, teach us just to trust you even more. For it's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.